This is R.J. Rushdoony, Easy Chair Number 40, March 15, 1983. Yesterday, March 14, was an interesting date in history. A hundred years ago yesterday, Karl Marx died. Karl Marx is a very important figure in history precisely because of his faults. Karl Marx was a man with a Jewish background who was one of the most vicious anti-Semites imaginable. He had been baptized a Christian. His father and mother were Christians. He hated Christianity with a passion. He married into the nobility, the German nobility. He hated the nobility and aristocracy with a passion. He lived off of a capitalist and lived all his life on the level of an English gentleman, although he whined about poverty, but he hated capitalism. Karl Marx was a man whose life was one of passionate hatred. He projected his own evil onto others. He spoke of capitalists as evil men who exploited and seduced and raped the working girl. Karl Marx raped his own wife's maid, a faithful family retainer, and had an illegitimate child by her. But he gave the impression to one and all that the child was the child of his associate, Engels. At every point, Karl Marx manifested hatred and evil. His whole mentality was so sick and poisonous that he was always suffering from psychosomatic ailments, including boils from head to foot. Now, I submit that this is the reason why Karl Marx succeeded. What he wrote was simply hatred and intellectual garbage. It's difficult to make sense out of Das Kapital because it does not make sense. But his hatred did to people who were losing their religious faith, who were increasingly under the influence of a philosophy of the conflict of interests, Hegelianism, to people who were eaten up with envy. Karl Marx was a great man. And this is why his influence to this day is important. As a matter of fact, all you have to do is to take a look at our presidents and other world leaders to see that people do not prefer excellence. They want a man in their own image. And as a result, we get the kind of leadership we do over and over again. Well, now to something else. Yesterday was also another very interesting anniversary. A good many years ago, I think something like 1757, a British admiral, Admiral Bing, B as in boy, Y-N-G, was executed. Admiral Bing was the son of one of the great English sea heroes. As a matter of fact, it was the first Admiral Bing who won Gibraltar for the English. His son rose high in the Navy to become himself an admiral and was in command of an expedition to relieve the British forces at Menorca. When they met the French fleet west in command of the van attacked the French. Bing gave such disorganized orders that the rear guard just milled around in confusion and then Bing ordered a withdrawal. For this he was tried and sentenced to die. A great many prominent people interceded. Admiral Bing was of the aristocracy, but the king ordered his death. Admiral Bing an older man was blindfolded, ordered to kneel on the deck of his ship, 
and three seamen came up to him, put their pistols to his head, and executed him. Now this is interesting. We can understand the attitude of those peoples who pleaded for some kind of clemency for Admiral Bing. But the fact that a sizable number of people, judges, and the king ordered his execution is significant, very significant. In that, it was indicative of the reviving strength the world over of Britain. They were not going to be merciful to men who were incompetent and who through their incompetence allowed others to die. It is interesting that a century before, under Cromwell, the British Navy and the British Army had become a world power. In Admiral Bing's day, that power was again reviving, and it was at that point that Bing was executed, and it indicated why British sea power was reviving. There was no toleration for incompetence. Well, about, oh, ten days ago, I was in Sacramento for a conference, and it was a pleasure to meet some of you there. And among those whom I met were two of you, Robert and Barbara Piacentini. And I'd like to pass on to the rest of you some of the stories that uh, the Piacentinis told me. Robert Piacentini has a relative who uh, has vineyards and a, a winery in Spain. And a while back, the Soviet Union had an industrial convention, and they were inviting people from all over Europe to come in the hopes that they would purchase Soviet machinery. Well, Robert Piacentini's relative went not because he expected to buy anything. He was very skeptical about the quality of anything the Soviet Union would produce. But it was a good chance to see something of the Soviet Union. And I believe they had reduced rates for such a, a trade convention. Well, he saw nothing worth buying, and as he looked at equipment generally in the Soviet Union, he found that uh, it was either broken down or the parts usually cannibalized to make something else run. On one occasion, when he was out to see one plant, they passed a huge square with tremendous crowds milling around, standing in line, buying tickets. He wanted to know why the crowds were there. They would not tell him. They went, saw the factory and the equipment they were to see, and on their return, the crowds were still there. He insisted on staying to see, and since they did not want to offend him, lest he refuse to buy equipment, which he didn't anyway, they allowed him to stay, and he found that they were selling tickets which gave the purchasers the right to stand in line to buy whatever was going to be sold a little later in the open square. Nobody knew what was going to be sold, but they were standing in line to buy it. And uh, your ticket number gave you a place in line. Well, finally, two trucks drove up, only two trucks with vodka. So those who were first in line had the low numbers, bought vodka, and tried to drink everything that they bought on the spot so they wouldn't have to share it with anyone or somebody get it from them, I guess, when they passed out. So <laughs> it was the most bombed out looking square in a matter of minutes that you could imagine. Now, that buying tickets to stand in line to get something is routine in the Soviet Union. I believe in an earlier Easy Chair, I mentioned the fact that uh, it was regarded as a prized Christmas present to give your mother a low number to stand in line for toilet paper. Robert Piacentini told me that his relative reported that... Uh, the restaurants they went to, which were the restaurants set aside apparently for tourists, 
the menus were really superb, every kind of choice dish. <laughs> but <laughs> they were always out of everything except one very mediocre kind of meal. So his relative bedeviled them every time by asking for all the exotic dishes imaginable, which he never got, of course. Well, so much for the might of the Soviet Union. Meanwhile, it is interesting that our banks, which have been making tremendous loans to the Soviet Union and other third world countries, the Eastern Establishment banks have come up with proposals to help the United States. These are first slow down social programs to cut defense by $25 billion and three, increase consumer taxes. Not one word about decreasing the aid and subsidy which they and Washington give to the Soviet Union and other countries. So much for their love of the United States. Let me quote this very interesting fact. This is from the Phoenix Letter, edited by Anthony Sutton, the March 1983 number. And this can be had through Research Publications, Box 39850, Phoenix, Arizona, 85069. $49 for six months and $87 a year. Let me read this. And I quote, American homeless, please read. The Reagan administration has just made the second $25 million installment on a low-cost housing loan to Marxist Zimbabwe. This is Zimbabwe Loan 613-8G-001, administered by the Agency for International Development. Terms are unbelievable. There is a grace period of 15 years during which nothing is repaid. The interest rate is based on that of U.S. Treasury bills, about 8%, and the repayment period for what it's worth is 30 years. There are American taxpayers homeless in Texas, Oklahoma, California, Arizona, and a dozen other places. And here we have the Reagan administration providing basic shelter for Zimbabwean Marxists because the party looks after its own first at interest rates far less than any American can obtain. Don't waste time and paper writing your congressman. All you'll get back is blah blah from an electronic typewriter. Try calling the White House if you're mad enough, or pass the news to the inhabitants of your local American tent city." Unquote. Well, let me give you something more from the Soviet Union. Some time ago, I dealt with a very interesting book written by Victor Herman, Coming Out of the Ice. Victor Herman, as you may recall, spent over 40 years as a an inhabitant and mostly prisoner of the Soviet Union. In the course of that time, his experiences, most incredible, were not even scratched in his account in coming out of the ice. For one thing, the publishers would not allow him to recount all the experiences and all his observations. Moreover, the book which sold tremendously, almost immediately, was withdrawn from publication. Why? Well, Victor Herman tells us in his book, The Gray People. The publishers got another book. The publishers were Harcourt, Harcourt Brace Jovanich. They were given by the Soviet Union the translated speeches of Brezhnev. So they published those and withdrew Victor Herman's book. Now, Victor Herman has written a couple of books to tell the rest of the story. One of these, which I've mentioned, is The Gray People. I won't read from it to you. I would hardly dare. 
but he describes what the Soviet Union is like in the prison camps. The whole purpose of the uh, Soviet regime is to break the spirit of the people, to get the kind of submission that Orwell talked about in 1984 when he described the purpose of totalitarianism, of socialism, a boot stamping on the human face forever. Break the people, and that's it. So what do they do to the women when they round them up and put them in prison camps? The first step, says Victor Herman, is to unleash trained dogs on them, dogs trained to rape women. Then the lesbians in the administration take their pick of them, and then the brutal guards, and they are worked in the prison camps. This is the kind of degradation that is made a matter of principle, and as Victor Herman makes clear, it goes back to Lenin. Lenin advocated terror as the means of dealing with people. Together with this is another book which is written with a Wayne University professor, Realities, Might and Paradox in Soviet Russia. Fred E. Dors, D-O-H-R-S, is the co-author with Victor Herman. This is more of a uh, technical, political, and economic analysis of the Soviet Union. There are many facts in here. This is a more mundane kind of book, but very important. Because, for example, it deals with the private plots which are supposed to produce, and I've often cited this data, earlier 52% of the Soviet produce and currently about 30%. Victor Herman tells you the truth about that. There are private plots, but they're not producing all of that. The peasants are allowed to steal from what is produced in the collective. After all, this will make them work a little harder if they can steal and sell some of that also. So they'll work for the collective and take and sell some of it on the black market. Both books are important. I'm sorry I have misplaced the data on the price, but the proceeds in part from these books, 40%, are given by Victor Herman to help the gray people, the Americans who are still in Soviet labor camps, to try to mount pressure to bring them to this country. You can order these books, both of them, by writing with regard to the price to Victor Herman, Independent Publishers, P.O. Box 2640, Southfield, Michigan, 43037. They are important reading. Now on to something else, a very important book, which I'm grateful to one of you, John Lofton, for telling me about it, is by William Broad and Nicholas Wade, Betrayers of the Truth, Fraud and Deceit in the Halls of Science. This was published at 1495 in 1982 by Simon & Schuster, in New York. This you can order from almost any bookstore. Betrayers of the Truth is a very telling analysis of fraud in the realm of science. The emphasis of the book is basically on what is going on in the world of science today, but <clears throat> the book goes back to the beginnings of modern science. And what we have had is a religious reverence for science in the modern age, and as a result, people believe that scientists work dispassionately, scientifically, that everything is a proven fact, 
But the authors go back to Galileo and to Isaac Newton and say, these men fudged. A good many of their statistics were manufactured. Many of their experiments were non-existent so that we have a long record of proven fraud. In fact, there is a brief appendix in the back of known or suspected cases of scientific fraud. I would say in many cases the authors are overly kind as they single out some of the great examples of fraud. And uh, one, uh, by the way, Gregor Mendel, the father of genetics, was among those. Another was Admiral Peary, who supposedly reached the geographic North Pole when, in fact, Peary knew he was hundreds of miles away. The interesting fact is that because Peary was connected with the Navy, his claims were defended, and those of Dr. Cook, which have since been verified, were challenged. He was treated as a hoax in his claims, and he was then indicted and sentenced for an oil fraud when actually everybody who was in that oil venture made money. So much for justice. Uh, among those uh, guilty of fraud, Robert Millikan, American physicist and winner of a Nobel Prize. Of course, the Piltdown Man, Cyril Burt, the English psychologist, who fabricated data to support the theory that human intelligence is 75% inherited. And since then, it has been demonstrated that uh, his data was manufactured. Another case of uh, cancer research at Boston University, Mark J. Strauss and Elias Al-Sabti, who plagiarized scientific papers and gained a reputation, 60 papers approximately that he plagiarized and reprinted as his own. A uh, young biochemist at Cornell University, Mark Spector, and so on and on. The book is most telling. The major source of funding nowadays is the federal government. And as a result, there is a tremendous amount of research going on, much of which is worthless. But because it is scientific, and all kinds of uh, beautiful uh, statements are submitted about the significance of the potential research. All kinds of research is financed. Thousands of scientific journals are published, and only a very small fraction of all this research is worthwhile. Most of it is a way of making a living at the expense of the taxpayer. As a result, fraud has proliferated. Moreover, although there are supposedly scientific checks and balances, the ultimate gamekeeper in science has to be personal morality. And if that is lacking, and if you have the kind of thing you do today where all too many scientists are without any religious faith, you're going to have a proliferation of fraud. You're going to have these men going to these thousands of journals, taking material, knowing that very few people ever read those journals, and reprinting it as their own. And in the process, reprinting something that may have been manufactured to begin with. Or else they have manufactured it to begin with. You have people who assume that science not only represents the scientific method, but logic. The authors deal with the myth of logic in an excellent chapter. 
so uh, the book is definitely important and uh, I think it is doubly important for what it contains and for the fact that it has been written. For a long time data has been coming out occasionally with regard to the frauds perpetrated by scientists. But nothing much done to tell the story. And now we have two men, writers, not scientists, who come out with a story. By the way, there is an excellent chapter on the intelligence tests and all the garbage that people believe because of the intelligence tests. For example, in World War I, tests were given to army uh, recruits by the various psychologists who promoted the tests. The army paid no attention to the results, and very wisely so. But the tests supposedly proved that the mental age of Americans was that of 13-year-olds. And that's a fact that has supposedly, a supposed fact that has stood ever since. That we Americans are a nation of boobs, of limited intelligence, and therefore of limited educatability. Now consider the implications of that. I know from my background in the studies of education, educational philosophers, public educators, have built their educational systems on that thesis that most Americans have no more capacity than a 13-year-old. As a result, we've seen educational standards steadily debased. We have had people who said that uh, there are a large number of students who, through some mental or physical condition, cannot read. And therefore, as many as one-third of all children are lacking in verbal skills and should never be taught to read. That's actually been propounded. And I'm not talking about something just recently, back in the 50s. And since then, we've been moving in that direction with the kind of teaching we've had in the schools. Well, the result is we have been destroying the future of this country. We have today approximately 30 million illiterates in this country and approximately another 27 to 30 million who are only barely literate. These are federal statistics for what they're worth. But it's very obvious that people today do not have the literary skills that were once taken for granted in this country. It represents a scientific fraud. Now, this book doesn't go into the implications that I've just dealt with educationally. Those are my observations. But I submit they're very important. Our whole educational system is premised on the IQ tests, on the belief in a very limited capacity in the average man. Why is it then that the Christian schools can take these same children and by and large, the Christian school children are middle class and lower class. And yet they excel. They run two to four years ahead of the public schools and every year are running more and more ahead, inching ahead. We have men who are champions of the IQ mythology who will tell you that the intelligence of the average Negro is markedly lower than that of the average white. Well, in terms of the tests, that's true. But is it true in terms of reality? To me, the interesting fact is that in the Christian schools across country, there is one group that excels very clearly, your Negro students. Why? because the parents feel so strongly about the travesty of the public schools and what the public schools have done to their people. 
They've turned out a generation of barbarians, of hoodlums whose parents are afraid of them. And so they bear down on their children and say, you study or you're going to be a bum like so-and-so. So the black children have strong family backing and pressure to do their homework. And as a result, with infrequent exceptions, they do excel in the Christian schools. And we are seeing today a growing black Christian school movement. And the potential of this movement is tremendous. And this is one reason why your public school educators are running scared. Consider the implications of the growing black school movement among black Christians. It will destroy the stronghold of the public schools. Their supposed benefit to the down and out, the downtrodden minorities. Well, back to Betrayers of the Truth. It's an excellent book, and there's a great deal in here that explains our current age, because among those with whom uh, the authors deal is J.B. Watson, founder of the Behaviorism School of Psychology. And the experiments on which Watson based his thinking can only be described most kindly as flawed, as very poor experiments. But today we have all kinds of thinking premised on that. We have Walden and other books by a contemporary behaviorist which tell us that man should live beyond freedom and dignity, Skinner's books, in other words, that most people need to be controlled electronically with electrono, uh, uh, electronic implants. All these ideas are products of fraud in science or, at the best, faulty inadequate experimentation based on preconceived ideas. This is a book to be strongly recommended to anyone who's an educator or who is interested in science. And remember what I said to begin with. The major source of funding today in science is the federal government. Now I'm going to go a step further. Otto Scott, one of our staff members, is working on a book on the foundations of technology in Christianity and in industrial research and development. And when you have industrial research and development, it had better be good because there's a great deal of pressure. There's the pressure of the marketplace, the pressure of lawsuits, the pressure of the federal government and its criticisms, the pressure of people like Ralph Nader, so that industrial research and development, while not perfect, is premised on conditions which are conducive to good results. So that the kind of thing described by betrayers of the truth, fraud, deceit in the halls of science, can only occasionally take place in industrial research and development. There you have the marketplace. There you have public criticism in the form of the marketplace, in the form of hostile critics and the like, functioning. But you don't have it where the federal government is subsidizing science. If we ended all federal subsidies to science, we would eliminate a great deal of this nonsense and of useless experimentation, which winds up as experimentation with people we wind up as the guinea pigs. This is the whole point of B.F. Skinner's work. And it is leading to experimentation with live aborted babies, 
with people in mental institutions, and so on and on. We are in evil times, and a good deal of the evil is federally funded. Remember this in the next political campaign, and make a contribution to good groups, groups that are fighting to cut off the funding of all these things, the funding of the left, the funding of abortion, the funding of homosexuals, the funding of all kinds of scientific research that is extensively riddled with fraud. So remember groups like Conservative Caucus, Gun Owners of America, Committee for a Free Congress, and so on. We need to eliminate this kind of garbage. Now to turn to something very diff different, an excellent book that I've been meaning to discuss for some time, and it gets put back. The book was published in 1980, and I believe it's gone out of print, by James Jorgensen, The Graying of America, Retirement and Why You Can't Afford It. It's an excellent study of Social Security and of the various pension plans. Since then, of course, all that he said about Social Security has proven to be correct. But let's deal with some of the other pension plans. Now, I'd like to quote somewhat extensively from the book. The Teamsters Pension Plan. Quoting from page 28, Gradually, a small measure of protection has been offered, allowing some employees to salvage part of their previously earned retirement benefits. But the rules continue to remain heavily tilted in favor of the retirement plan. To illustrate how bizarre the rule of unbroken service has become, I only need to let you look at a 1979 case filed in the federal courts in San Francisco. In this case, Teamsters Union truck drivers had their work time credited to either the Western Conference of Teamsters Pension Plan or to the Teamsters Local 85 Pension Plan, depending on the type of driving performed. Dividing up the time between the two pension plans in this way could either result in a failure to qualify for coverage because of insufficient years of service or, more importantly, violate the ru rule on unbroken employment. This problem came to light when a driver planned to retire and he was told that even though he met the requirements of 25 years of work under the Western Conference Plan, he was not qualified in all respects, including in the matter of unbroken service, and so was not entitled to receive any pension benefits. If he wanted to work three more years, he might qualify for a pension benefit of only 37% of what he had expected to receive. As recently as early 1979, a case of lost pen pension benefits finally made its way to the U.S. Supreme Court. The decision seems confirmation that the pension plan's fine print will continue to thwart the long-suffering employee. The case involved a Teamster truck driver by the name of John B. Daniel. He had worked a full 22 and a half years before he was forced to retire due to failing eyesight. Unfortunately for John, 13 years before his retirement, he had been briefly, for four months, involuntarily laid off. Not an unusual event in itself, for it happened and probably will continue to happen to many employees just like John. But when he confidently applied for his Teamster pension, he was told that he did not qualify since his plan provided benefits only to those who had at least 20 continuous years of service. John, like millions of other workers, had not only overlooked the fine print, but in this case had overlooked the giant killer of them all, the rule on unbroken employment service. What made the difference this time was that, unlike many unhappy workers before him, John Daniel sued. He maintained that he had been misled, and if he had known how slight his chances were of ever collecting a pension, he would have changed to a job with a better retirement plan. 
as the case went through the courts, a novel legal issue was raised, since Daniel's lawyer argued that when a worker joins a pension plan, he is agreeing, in effect, to invest a portion of his wages in return for benefits when he retires. The Supreme Court rejected this argument, finding that a worker's interest in a retirement plan is not an investment within the means of the security laws. In his decision, Supreme Court Justice Lewis F. Powell wrote, Looking at the economic realities, it seems clear that an employee is selling his labor to obtain a livelihood, not making an investment for the future, unquote. What the court did not say when they made their decision was that to rule in Daniel's favor would have been to overturn one of the first and firmest of pension guidelines. Chaos would have erupted in pension systems all over America. Looking at the economic realities, they said, the cost of change now to a pension plan on whose promised payments workers could actually rely would be phenomenal. It has been estimated that pension funds, funds could be hit for as much as $40 billion if they had to make good on all the lost pension benefits similar to John Daniels. The blunt assessment of the court is that pension plans are risky. The original guidelines were intended to make them that way. Worse yet, some 40 million workers covered under pension plans directly affected by the Daniel decision continue to remain unaware of the powerful rule of unbroken service. Somehow, a way must be found to inform them, unquote but nothing has happened since to inform them. So there are 40 million workers out there expecting a pension they're not going to get. And the Supreme Court doesn't want them to get it because the pension plans are rigged against the workers. They're a come on, they're a fraud. And Jorgensen did an excellent work and everything since has proven that he told the truth. You might find this book in some remainder's sale. Then, perhaps all too briefly, to a very important film review in the March 1983 issue of Commentary by Richard Granier, entitled The Gandhi Nobody Knows. As the author points out, the film presents Gandhi as some kind of semi-Christian saint when he was nothing of the sort, as an equalitarian when he was emphatically anti-equalitarian, as someone who was opposed to the caste system when all his life Gandhi was a believer in the caste system. Towards the last, he advocated a kindlier treatment of the untouchables, but he never abandoned his belief in the caste system. Moreover, Gandhi was very pro-Turkey and Sultan Turkey. In fact, the, there are many things about him, including the fact that he wrote to Hitler uh, and addressed him as friend. His pacifism was a defeatist perspective. If he had applied it to anyone but the English, it would not have worked. He was a reactionary. He had, as uh, Rabindranath Tagore, a great Hindu, declared, a fierce joy of annihilation. He welcomed and this is his own term, a bloodbath. The British never gave it to him. Moreover, as the reviewer says, a great deal is made of the fa famous Amritsar massacre of 1919 when 379 people were killed. But to quote Grenier, as soon as the oppressive British were gone, however, the Indians, gentle, tolerant people that they are, gave themselves over to an orgy of bloodletting. 
Trained troops did not pick off targets at a distance with Enfield rifles. Blood-crazed Hindus or Muslims ran through the streets with knives, beheading babies, stabbing women, old people. Interestingly, our movie shows none of this on camera, the oldest way of stacking the deck in Hollywood. The fact is that we will never know how many Indians were murdered by other Indians during the country's independence massacres, but almost all serious studies place the figure over a million and some such as pain sources go to four million. So for those who like round numbers, the British killed some 400 seditious colonials at Amritsar, and the name Amritsar lives in infamy. By the way, the English never did anything like that on any other occasion after. While Indians may have killed some four million of their own countrymen for no other reason than they were of a different religious faith, and people think their great leader would make an inspirational subject for a movie. Well, there's more like this. And uh, a good deal, for example, about Gandhi's relationship to Hitler, whom he addressed as friend and appealed to as a friend to do certain things and hitler bad as he was had sense enough not to listen to gandhi the english didn't have that much sense there's this is a review of about 20 pages and it's all of it worth reading we are told for example of the practices uh, of Gandhi of sleeping with virgins every night to prove his chastity, of his abnormal absorption with excretion, making everyone who came to work with him work at cleaning latrines, and uh, taking a great deal of pleasure in doing so supposedly to humble them and teach them humility. But as the author says, uh, there was a morbid infatuation with filth, and one Hindu, V.S. Naipaul, goes as far as to call the Indian deification of filth uh, as a part of the mentality of Gandhi and others. And decades later, the author says, Krishna Menon, a Gandhian, and one time Indian defense minister, was still fortifying his sanctity by drinking a daily glass of urine. This, by the way, is not an unusual practice among devout Hindus. Well, there's more of this, but we're given Gandhi in the picture as a very great saint. Uh, someone, a model for us all. And uh, last night during the news, I heard something of the preliminaries to what will lead ultimately to Oscars and a very emotional statement about this film. If you want to read the entire thing, and there's a great deal more that I just didn't quote because I don't think <laughs> it's too readily repeatable, Read commentary from March 1983. Well, our time is running out, and I want to end on a somewhat lighter vein, so I want to pass this story on to you. Uh, these are troubled times, and some people are not taking the strain too well. And a woman stopped by to see her friend, whose husband was not bearing up too well under the strain of uh, the recession and economic uh, uncertainty. So when she walked into the house, she saw her friend's husband sitting in the living room, surrounded by his fishing tackle, and very earnestly fishing in a bucket of water. And she was quite shocked by the sight, and she turned to her friend and said, Kate, you must do something about Ralph. You've got to get him to a psychiatrist soon. 
And Kate looked at her apologetically and said, I, I know, I know, Ralph does need to see a psychiatrist, but not just yet. We need the fish. Well, <laughs> so much for that. I had a delightful time uh, last week, Friday and Saturday morning. I was uh, in Eugene, Oregon at the uh, River Valley Inn, a lovely place to stay, one of the loveliest places I've ever stayed, for a conference of the um, uh, Covenant Churches of the uh, Pacific Northwest and of Canada, some 300 men. Uh, the group is headed by Howard Carter of New Zealand. There were some uh, pastors from Africa who were also present. And I was speaking to them about the church and state uh, crisis. Had a very wonderful reception, and it was a great delight to be with them. I'll tell you more about some of the aspects of that conference in about two months because there are some developments forthcoming that are very important. Well, it's been good to be with you again, and I have a number of uh, very interesting items that I'll reserve for our next session together. Meanwhile, I want to tell you that uh, in the Calcede News very soon, John Quaid probably will have a report on some developments in the film project. There are some tremendous things taking place there, some major activities. We may have a report uh, in a month on the visit of Howard Amundsen and my son, Mark Rushdooney, to various points in the Far East. They uh, went to Japan to see some of the mission fields there. They will conclude their uh, journey with a stay in Switzerland, but most of it of the time will be spent in Bangladesh, where apparently the socialist regime is beginning to confiscate the properties of Christians. And so they went over there for representing an institute that wants an investigation of the matter. So perhaps we can get a report if any of the data can be made public. But the kind of situation that we have here is taking place worldwide. A number of countries are facing problems in that Christians are being persecuted. Uh, we are involved in two or three situations and I'm not at liberty to deal with this at present, but perhaps at a later time I can give you a report on that also. Well, thank you for listening, and God be with you until our next session together. Thank you.